Thanks for joining us here on AutoLine Detroit with our special guest this morning, Bob Lutz, the former vice chairman of General Motors, had also been at Chrysler, also at Ford, also at BMW. Great having you back here on AutoLine Detroit. Always good to be here, John. And of course, we should point out one of the reasons we've got Bob here is he's just finished reading or writing another book. This one called Car Guys versus Bean Counters. We're going to be getting into that in just a moment and helping me to get into that. Our Chubba Chetta, the former editor of Car and Driver magazine. Great having you back here, Chubba. Good to be here, John. And also, Peter DeLorenzo, a.k.a. The Auto Extremist. Uh, great having you here, Peter, Glad too. Glad to be here, John, as always. Bob, uh, what I find so interesting about this book is, yeah, it's about the automotive industry, but it goes beyond that, too. You really pick on American business schools and MBAs, Masters of Business Administration, because you say they've overanalyzed business. In fact, you say this is one of the reasons why America's lost so much manufacturing and does poorly in so many other businesses. That's true. Um, I think the business schools um, have, a, have to bear a heavy guilt burden because my, my point is, I, ever since leaving General Motors, I've met a number of entrepreneurs and I find that their approach to business is refreshingly simple. Uh, come up with a significantly better product or service, uh, manufacture it, and make sure that your revenues are higher than your costs. And that basically sums up the whole science of business administration. But what's happened is uh, there's been this almost deliberate intellectualization where uh, people go to the business schools, they learn all these techniques and methods and analytical techniques and so forth, and it's always about divining the future. Recently I had um, lunch or dinner with a Chinese CEO, actually the CEO of Wu, Wu Ling, and he told me with some pride that China was putting in no less than 40 graduate, graduate schools of business administration. I said, boy, that's the best news I've heard in a long time. <laughs> Well, Bob, didn't you run into the tail end of that when you f were uh, uh, brought into General Motors by Rick Wagner? Weren't, you were r riding in just at the tail end of the uh, the P&G influenced era at General Motors, and you were still dealing with that when you stepped in. That was another um, uh, failed model, and I saw it at Chrysler. We had Paul Stick from RJR Nabisco, who talked Lee Iacocca into brand management at Chrysler. Joe Cullman uh, of um, Philip Morris, yeah, Philip Morris, um, was a board member at Ford, and he tried to talk HF2 and uh, Lee Iacocca into brand management. And it is, it is always a disaster because what these um, consumer product CEOs don't understand is that if, if you're a, a brand manager at Procter & Gamble and you're dealing with Crest or Oil of Ule or something like that, um, you want to try a new flavor or a new bottle or a, a, a new version, you want to you know, whiskey-flavored Crest for the, for the male market or something, you can get the chemist to whop you up a, a batch of 20,000 tubes, the packaging is cheap, then you go to a test market like Skokie, Illinois, buy saturation, local TV coverage, put it on the shelves, and if it flies, you can roll it out nationally. But try doing that in the automobile industry where there is, there is no such thing as test quantities. You make the major commitment to design, engineering, lining up suppliers, manufacturing, and everything. So. It, it's just a concept that absolutely does not work. And at, at GM, it was, of course, taken to absurd 
uh, absolutely absurd extremes where it was decreed that every brand would have certain identifying characteristics, like only Chevrolet was allowed to have five-spoke aluminum wheels. Well, I wonder if anybody talked to the competition, um, made sure that they didn't use five-spoke, which is a fairly common wheel configuration. Pontiac had to have those see-through headrests, you know, the, the, the Volvo style the, with the frame and the, and the mesh in between. And uh, at one point I said, why does Pontiac have that? Uh, let's get rid of them. They cost 15 bucks a car more and there's no discernible customer value. Oh, you can't do that. That's a brand characteristic for Pontiac. And, and it was all this crazy stuff. Every Buick had to have some sort of sweep spear. Every Chevrolet had to have that chrome band through the front end. And it was just absolutely absurd. And the basic goodness or the proportions, shape of the car just didn't matter as long as you could check the box that all these foppish little brand characteristics were taken care of. I mean, it was, it was collective insanity. You know, not to defend the MBAs, but the title of your book, Car Guys versus Bean Counters, yeah. almost struck me as a little misleading. It almost seemed like Car Guys versus the rest of the company. Because, mm. well, you know, because you, there was one, one segment there where you went to some corporate meeting where the major goals of the corporation were laid yeah. out. And I think you couldn't even count how many there were, but there were was somewhere this, like... I think it was a six by six matrix. Yeah, so yeah, it was 30 some goals. And there were everything from be better corporate citizens to meet meeting diversity goals to cutting energy usage and building good Off cars and trucks. Offshoring suppliers. Offshoring suppliers. Yeah. But building good cars and trucks was only one it was, of those it was, 30. It was, it was lost in the center someplace. Well, yeah, and, and that, struck, that to me seems to be even more the heart of yeah, the but, problem. But where, that's true, but guess who puts that stuff together? That's, that the point is, uh, bean counters to me aren't necessarily just in finance. It's uh, everybody who is driven by hard analytical processes as opposed to common sense and a drive for excellence. Uh, actually, bean counterism is worse in product planning than it is in, in the finance group. That's where you really have the, uh, the hegemony of the, the numerical types with all of the, I mean, you had such stuff that we, somebody wanted to, at one point there was a project to do uh, a supercharged Escalade with 550 horsepower and we'd charge another $10,000 for it. And uh, then the, the, when, when planning does the analysis of whether we should do this, it was, with, there was the volume number, which um, arguably, um, luckily we, that's a project we canceled when things went bad. But um, the volume number was credible. You know, I, I probably could have in five minutes thought, written it down, and it would have been just as accurate. But then comes the substitution analysis. What other GM vehicles will this displace? And that's where it really gets ridiculous. There was something like 81 Corvettes in there annually. And I said, why would a supercharged Escalade take sales away from like a Corvette Z06? Oh, well, according to our model, there are people out there who simply want the most powerful and fastest car that General Motors builds. And if that's going to be an Escalade, then they will askew the Corvette. I said, you know what? That's nuts. That is just plain nuts. And uh, I, I don't mind if people generate that stuff, if it's a, 
uh, if it's a would you take, you know, uh, this is what our this is what our resident intellectuals believe will happen. But the problem is this this was the system that was locked in place and it drove decisions. You seem to be a manager too who prefers simplicity and somebody who doesn't go looking around for a consensus from everyone else. Well, I like consensus because um, sometimes, uh, look, none of us have a 1,000 batting average, including myself. And I I think when it comes to product, my (coughs) batting average is probably higher than most. It's probably 700 on 1,000, which still means that I have 30% bad ideas. And then when that happens, I like it when people argue with me and, and talk me out of it. And that happened occasionally at, at GM. As I describe in the book, the GMC XUV, remember the long wheelbase envoy with that sort of roll-top desk, lamella roof that would retract, you know, shades of a Studebaker wagon <laughs> of a couple of decades earlier. Uh, and always shown with transporting grandfather clocks and trees. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, imagine roaring through town with an upright grandfather clock sticking out the top. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I, that was one of the programs that when I got to GM, Rick Wagner said, you know, go through the product plan and cancel what you think is bad. And boy, there was a lot of bad stuff that I just just put X to. Like, you should have seen the seven-passenger Saturn view. I mean, that had to be seen to be, to be believed. This had a rear-end extension. It looked like one of those old Dodge 18-passenger no. church vans, you know. <laughs> I mean, it was absurd. Nobody would have bought it. And I said, why, why do you even do something like that? Well, you know, senior management has said from now on, every SUV we do has to have a, a, a three-row version. And the only way we can do it in the view is with this. Uh, anyway, cancel that. Cancel a whole bunch of other stuff that was really ridiculous. And then we got to the SUV, and I said, let's cancel that because it is terminally ugly. It's going to be hard to build. Uh, I can't see very many people finding a use for this. But... There was also an edict, a metric. You don't say it was metric. Forty uh, percent of the products had to be innovative. So this this accounts for stuff like the Aztec and the XUV and stuff that that were answers to questions that nobody asked. And uh, the XUV, I just and the VLE said, look, before you do this, let me let me sit you down with our product planners, and I sat down with the product planners. And for the next 40 minutes, I was treated to an endless PowerPoint presentation uh, showing usage patterns of trucks and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and that this was going to do 90,000 units for absolutely sure. Actually, they thought like around 120, but 90 would be fine. And if I canceled it, the second assembly plant would be underutilized, and then the resulting fixed costs would be spread across the rest of the product line, decreasing their profitability. And finally, it was, you know, for want of a horseshoe nail, the whole, the whole battle was lost. So I finally said, well, look, and I was new, and I must say somewhat intimidated by the sheer intellectual power of so many. And boy, you want intelligent people. I mean, GM is loaded with them. And, uh, and too many, I, I think, because common sense sometimes gets left, left, left aside. So finally, I said, well, you know, who am I? I've only been here three weeks, and um, if, if you're so convinced and so forth. And we finally went ahead. It was a terribly difficult program, water leaks, uh, motorcycling sensors, and so forth. I mean, it was hard to execute. 
uh, and very expensive. And at the end of the day, we sold 13,000 and shut it down. So that was one where I should have said, I'm not listening to this. We're, cu we're cutting this baby. But you, can, you, you can't, uh, no single individual is going to be successful over time with that management without making some catastrophic mistakes. Now, a guy who habitually rules by fiat is Ferdinand Piech. And he made some whoppers, too. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, the chairman of Volkswagen, yeah, right, chairman, or chairman of the supervisory board. Yeah, right. chairman of the supervisory board. He's still pretty active in Very much the de so. <laughs> And uh, he's an absolute uh, despot, uh, and, uh, and nobody dares argue with him. And that explains stuff like the Volkswagen uh, Phaeton, you know, which yeah. was not a happy program, but it was his personal vision that Volkswagen... Uh, Audi was going to go after BMW, and Volkswagen's role was to go after Mercedes-Benz. Yeah. So that, that Tough did, one. Yeah, <laughs> I'll say. In your book, you talk a little bit about GM's history and how it got to yeah. the problem area. But I'm still puzzled by, you know, whether it's bean counters or car guys, you know, GM had as much as 45% of the U.S. market as recently as 78. And from there, for the next 30 years, the share has, was on a yeah. straight line decline, yeah. bottoming out around the 18% area. Yeah. Now, whether you're a car guy or a bean counter, smart or dumb, how can you be on the board of a company and just watch this and not do anything about it? I mean, it's staggering. Well, the board did do something about it. Re remember with Lloyd Royce and Bob Stemple, they, they removed both of them. Uh, John Smale became a non-executive chairman. He was the Procter & Gamble brand management guy, and he put Jack Smith, a very able executive, in as president and CEO. And um, so the board did act. But the board members are not automotive specialists. They're uh, sort of, they don't know anything about the business. They, they get involved with the business maybe a day and a half per week. Um, I would say a large percentage of them don't drive American cars anyway, so they, they, they sort of view it with detached, detached amusement or bemusement. And um, they say, well, how do we know this next one? How do we know the share is going to go up? And then they're treated to one of the 40-minute PowerPoint presentations that shows this time it can't fail. And, of course, then the next time it failed. But if, but if you're a board member, and I accept your scenario, yeah. but then, you know, the... Uh the, that management change occurred in the early 90s. Yeah. So come 96, you're still on the board and you say, well, gee, you know, you had predicted the share was going to be here and it's actually here. Yeah. So, you know, you're gone. You're, uh, at that point, I mean, you, you think some sort of serious, if not panic, but some, uh, you know, some note that uh, we really need to do something serious yeah. would be afoot, and it didn't seem to be. No, it, it didn't. And, and uh, in retrospect, you tell yourself, well, maybe the board should have gotten some outside advisors and to do an analysis of the business and the management and the, the product. I mean, they might have come to me and you know, I was retired. Uh, I, would have, I would have done a scathing report on, on what's wrong. But you talk about the decline from the late 70s. It was uh, you really have to, um, and I say that in the book, the U.S. government bears heavy responsibility with the passage of the original CAFE legislation, which was a fleet corporate average, which the Japanese lobbyists helped push through. 
a more intelligent approach would have been a category-based, every category of vehicle has to improve 15 or 20 percent. It's know, what whatever. we have now, actually. Yes, the most which is, law. the absolute numbers are ridiculous now, but the approach of having every category, by the way, the Japanese manufacturers were terribly opposed to this, is let's just have a, let's just have a larger fleet average, okay? Well, uh, the government didn't bite twice on that because we were wide awake this time. But with the, with the Fleet Average Cafe, uh, since we were the purveyors of basically large rear-wheel drive V8 cars that the American public liked at, you know, 60, 65 cents a gallon, was roughly one-fourth what the rest of the world paid, um, we had to tear up the entire product portfolio, soup to nuts, everything. Look at the Chrysler went from being a full-line producer to basically doing four-cylinder K-cars that you could have with various bodies and, and various wheelbases. So we had to abandon the territory that had provided our profitability, and the Japanese, with years of cafe credits already under their belt and comfortably on the good side of the average, they were able to expand upwards. I mean, the whole thing was... If you wanted to design a program to destroy the domestic industry and hand it to the imports, they couldn't possibly have done better. And then, of course, we lost it on quality. Mm. But before that, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, there was nothing wrong with American quality. In fact, many Europeans and people in Asia um, didn't trust the domestic luxury brands, and it was not uncommon to see people drive large Buicks or Cadillacs or Chevrolets because that's where the reliability was. And we lost it, we really lost it with, with CAFE legislation. But there was also, as I point out in the book, there was plenty of management incompetence thrown in. Let's go back to the board a minute because I'm, I'm fascinated by that aspect. And I've often wondered if one of the, the disadvantages that American businesses face is they've got to close the books every three months. Got to have that quarterly yeah. report. As you well know, uh, European companies, Japanese companies, in fact, rest of the world companies, yeah. report maybe twice a year and don't give out nearly as much information in their financial reporting. You can argue the pros and cons on that, but it seems to me American business is way too focused on yeah. getting the share price up, stock yeah. share, yeah, market share. Yeah. And closing the book every three months is, it yeah. seems that it's and, hard and, to get long-term planning out of that well, kind of a model. Well, that too. And the other thing is it's, it's hard to have a global strategy when you report profitability by region because you'll get sub-optimization. Um, an example, when, um, when Chrysler had the Diamond Star joint venture with Mitsubishi, um, Europe had imposed limits on Japanese, on Japanese cars. And um, Mitsubishi said, we would like to shift some of the production in Diamond Star to Colts for export to Europe. And uh, since we were a 50% partner, we could see what the profitability was and said, well, why do, why, why do you want to do that? You're going to lose money. And they said, oh, yeah, we'll lose money at Diamond Star because we got to get them to Europe. Uh, Europe has an 11% uh, tariff plus a 20% VAT. So the lower we can get the going in price, the more competitive we are in the market. And believe you have to take our word for it, but we make money on those in Europe, which more than offsets the loss that we take on them in the United States. Well, 
if you report profits, and, and so from a global standpoint, that was an intelligent strategy because those cults could come in without being subject to the Japanese restrictions. Um, from a, if you run the business globally, that was an extremely smart business decision. If Mitsubishi had reported profits locally, like United States versus Europe, that never would have happened. It was uh, when we did the original Pontiac GTO, I mean, not the original, but the one in the uh, early 2000s, um, the most of the w wasted motion and discussion was over transfer pricing. And I said, it's wooden nickels, guys. It's all General Motors. Oh, no, oh, no. No, no. General Motors was a holding company which aggregated the profits of four regional automobile comp companies. So this, I, I've, I've been uh, bitterly opposed to this, um, as opposed to reporting automotive results globally the way Toyota does, this regional breakdown is nuts. But, you know, it's, it's there. But you're right, there's a way too much of a short-term focus. And way too much, and this is the whole thesis of the book, way too much of a focus on generating a set of financial goals and then subordinating everything else to those financial goals. And if you say, well, we'd like to do this product much better, yeah, but does that fit into the big, to the big picture of where we have to go? Because if, if once that future financial analysis and the cash flow analysis and where will we be in, in two years or this year, next year, and in five years. If I, if I were to add cost to a car to make it better, um, the volume numbers wouldn't change. It's called the constant volume concept. But I'm deteriorating the margin because the selling price doesn't, doesn't change either. That's all locked in concrete. And it wasn't until I was able, with a, a great deal of difficulty, to break through that and tell the finance people, look, let me put 500, suppose I put 500 per car in. Oh, we can't let you do that. It's going to deteriorate the market. I said, hear me out. How, what's our average incentive cost right now? Uh, $4,000. Okay. What if we do put 500 into the cars and make them much better and more attractive, and the incentives go to $2,000? Wouldn't we be $1,500 ahead? Well, that's farmer's math. We can't accept that. Um, <laughs> we have to run the business by the numbers. I mean, that 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 stuff is insanity. These, these are people who are people who are prisoners of a stupid analytical system which prevents them from doing the right thing. But how do you answer... And real quick, we're at okay. the very end here. Well, it's a, it's, it's a tough question, but you know, you were a unique guy at GM. You came in with this, with this product ability. You were brought in by the chairman. You had tremendous that power. <laughs> well, you're, and, and, but to a, if you're trying to figure out how to run a company, you're trying to figure out a method by which we can run the company if we don't have a Bob Lutz or we don't have a Steve yeah. Jobs at yeah, Apple. As I said, I mean, how keeping you, Bob Lutz is not a long-term strategy. Well, that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, this, uh, MBAs are trying to come up with a system in order to produce results going forward without having to count on the, you know, the brilliant guy on the white horse. Uh, so how do you do that? Well, uh, I think GM has it figured out, and, and, and I really thank Ed Whitaker for that because um, in one of Ed Whitaker's uh, policy group meetings, he said, we need, a, uh, we need a mission statement for GM. And I thought, oh, boy, here we go. You know, it is the mission of General Motors to be a good corporate citizen, provide value to shareholders while respecting diversity, and all of that. You know, you've read the average <laughs> mission statement that fills a page. 
And um, somebody started with something like that, and he says, I'm not interested in that. I think we ought to just say the mission of General Motors is to build the world's best cars and trucks. Design, design, build, and sell the world's best cars and trucks. And we all said, wow, that, I said, works for me. <laughs> and that is embedded now. And I think one of the, 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 the happy things about General Motors now is that whether you're looking at Dan Amon or uh, Dan Ackerson or Salem Bingle or Mary Barra, they're all relative newcomers. Mary, of course, been in the company, but new to product development. And they very simplistically asked me, so what was the problem before you got here? I said, there, there was not a focus on excellence and customer value. It was a, the, the prime focus was on individual metrics, sub-goals, targets, timing goals, material goals, bill of materials, reuse goals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And nowhere was, was there the, the prime emphasis on doing great cars. Now, absolutely, a company like GM, Ford, Christ, any large company needs finance people. But they are the brakes, whereas the creative people are the engine. And if you have all brakes and airbags and no engines, you're going to have a car that can't get out of its own way. Safe, safe. But, uh, and if it's all engine and no brakes, then that's not good either. So to me, it should start with the creative process, where the creative people put a vision out there of a spectacular car. And then you analyze it and say, well, is this affordable? Gee, no, we can't afford an all-new architecture for that. Well, could we do it? Could we do 90% of it off of an existing architecture? Yeah, we wouldn't have to change the proportion that much. And so then it becomes a give and take. But you start with the object. You start with the lust object. And then you optimize and make it realistic. Whereas at GM, it was backwards. It started all with numbers, definitions, dimensions. And then it was handed to design and say, here, put a wrapper on this for us. And, the, you know, they couldn't. And there, you've just gotten a complete summary of car guys versus bean counters because that captured it, that very last statement that you made. But Bob Lutz, thanks so much for coming on Autoline Detroit and talking all about it. Very fascinating discussion there. Thank you. Good to be here. Chabachetta, Peter DeLorenzo, thank you guys for being here too. And thank all of you for tuning in. <laughs>